Malcolm Margolin, welcome to the new school. Well, well, thank you. I'm here with my colleague Steve Heilig, and we're delighted to welcome you as uh, the founder and uh, publisher of Heyday Press, uh, the author of two extraordinary books, among others, well, more than two, but The Ohlone Way, Indian Life in the San Francisco Monterey Bay Area, which is now in its 35th year and uh, uh, was selected by the San Francisco Chronicle as one of the top 100 Western nonfiction books of the 20th century, and The Way We Lived, California Indian Stories, Songs, and Reminiscences, uh, which followed it. Also, the uh, publisher of News from Native, Calif uh, from Native California and of a really extraordinary uh, set of books by other authors. I have before me the, uh, the listing of uh, your 2013 fall and winter listing. And again, it's just an uh, incredible um, a list of uh, elegant, beautiful, significant books. So we're honored to have you here. I asked uh, Steve Heilig, uh, who's been a friend of yours for a long time, to begin the conversation. And with that, I'll turn it over to Steve. Thank you, Michael. The interesting thing about this, well, first let me say thank you all very much for coming on a Tuesday afternoon. This is a great turnout. I was downtown and people were saying, you know, there might be signs up there about the closure or something. I said, well, there might be, but since when have signs stopped anybody in Bolinas from coming somewhere, you know? So, so I'm glad you all made it. And the interesting thing is... What's, I, what's your sign? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> so... I actually sort of met both of these fine gentlemen through doing book reviews for the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, which I've done for many years. And I've done a few heyday titles through the years. Uh, I had done Michael's book on cancer therapies first and then ended up being here, which was great. But then I met Michael through, I mean, uh, Malcolm. We uh, both had this sweet little fellowship uh, that's kind of like a uh, micro-MacArthur or a homeopathic version of the MacArthur Fellowship that some other people have, the real one, but um, where we met through a, a friend of ours, Tom Layton, and just kind of hit it off and started, uh, you know, hanging out whenever we could. And as it turns out, I learned that both of these gentlemen were at school at the same time at some fancy college back in Cambridge, Massachusetts, although they never knew each other. And so here they are. You know, and I think this is really uh, uh, a great opportunity here. And also, it turns out that Malcolm is working on his autobiography, mm -hmm. um, his life story. And he was kind enough to share, you know, it's an early draft, some of it with both Michael and I. We both burrowed through it in the last just few nights. And, I mean, it's just fascinating. I didn't, I, you know, you think you know somebody a little bit, but then you read these and you go, wow, this guy, uh, he's really... Uh, gotten around, shall I say, and it started back east, and uh, he has been back and forth in the early years in Ca to the west coast and through California, traveling around in a VW van, having children, camping out, working in uh, the wilderness and the forest, doing restoration and things like that, occasionally writing something, um, and one of the quotes I, uh, you know, he, he told me it's okay to quote a little bit from the autobiography, but this is not, you know, it's not published yet or anything, so, but things like, I checked into a nut house for two and a half weeks for an experiment on LSD. 
took acid for two straight weeks every day. It was terrifying, but I came out a different person. <laughs> I was totally out of my mind, but it was that oneness with everything. I still have that. It's kind of funny, on the one hand, and these are all different, these are excerpts from different, it's kind of funny, on the one hand, I don't have any patience with ESP or New Age stuff. On the other hand, I walk in that world, and I have neither need nor desire to reconcile that contradiction. <laughs> Given what I did in my life, I could never run for political office. <laughs> um, so he wound up after a lot of traveling around, and uh, he wound up in Berkeley in the 60s, went back and forth a couple times, but went there, I think he said, as it says in the book, for a temporary stay and then to move on in 1969 or 70. Basically been there ever since. But uh, We're still passing through. Still passing <laughs> through, exactly. <laughs> passing through Berkeley and everywhere else. And began writing, and the, the very first... Heyday book actually was the Ohlone Way, right? It's no, it, it, it wasn't. It was the, a book called The East Bay Out. East Bay Out. Right. Yeah. But The Ohlone Way is still your bestseller, right? Did you tell me that once? Well, yeah. yeah. Of, of the books that I've written, it's the bestseller. Okay, yeah. but yeah. not of Heyday. Yeah. Maybe over the entire 40 years of its existence, uh -huh. it has been... Hey, listen, this is not an autobiography. This is yes. a series of interviews right. that somebody did with me that they've edited and they've put together. And the whole idea of my writing an autobiography was so horrifying and embarrassing <laughs> and th th that somebody just finally sat me down and stuck a microphone in front of me and recorded me and various of my friends, including Larry DeStacy, who's here. And... and Put this to, and, and put this together so these quotes that you're quoting, I'd forgotten some of them. <laughs> <laughs> There's many more. But the, the I'm, I'm afraid so. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, so when we were talking about doing this before, you, you know, he said, what do you want to talk about, me? And he, he said something like, I... I don't know myself. I'm interested in learning about myself. If you ask me, I, you know, he's, Malcolm, as you can maybe tell already, is not that excited about talking about himself to people. You say somewhere in this book too, the or the interviews that you've spent your life focused really on the outside world more than on yourself, and that's I think true, judging from all the accomplishments here. But let's go back to the beginning of uh, you know. You, there's a lot of Stories in there you've taught, you've written or told this person a lot about uh, your childhood and upbringing is somewhat uh, I wouldn't call it chaotic but adventuresome and getting around and so what would you like to tell us about your your upbringing and and or what are you willing to? My upbringing. How far are we going back to? As far as you want. <laughs> you still okay? Here, let's start with this. You told me that your or you wrote in there that your very favorite first book was Pinocchio by Disney. No, it wasn't by Disney. It was well, the, published it, through it, Disney. It, it, it yeah. was the original Italian version right. of it all. And that you read it over and over. Did, was that the beginning of your love of reading? 
I'm not sure. I think that I grew up in a household. It was it was it was a Jewish household, and books were valued, and and books were valued to the extent to which if you had your nose in a book, you could escape having to talk to your cousin Arthur, you could escape <laughs> having to do the dishes, you could escape having to deal with your parents and your brother and various other things. So I consequently always had my nose in a book, and and I think there were several books. For some reason or other, there was a big fat Pinocchio. I, I still remember the pictures in it, and I would read it. And, and it was I would read it over and over again. And it had wonderful pieces of wisdom in it, like "What is done cannot be undone." And I and I, and I, I still that line still haunts me. And the other book that I loved as a kid was uh, "Make Way for Ducklings." I grew up in Boston, and it was the first time. And, and "Make Way for Ducklings" takes place in Boston, and there were things in that book that took place in Boston Common, on Charles Street, on the Esplanade, on places that I knew. And it had never occurred to me that a book could be about a place that you knew. I mean, it, it, I, I always thought books were about some other foreign, wonderful place of the imagination. But here was a place that I knew. And I, I, and I would look at it over and over again, and I'd go to those places where the ducklings were born on the island, and I would feel that I was in sacred place. And there was something about there was something about that, that love of that book. There was something about the artifactuality of the book. There was something about its presence. There was something about... There's a wonderful story that goes back to the Venerable Bede, tells the story of St. Augustine's coming to England to convert the heathen. And he's telling them all about God and all about walking on water and all about resurrection and the afterlife. And they're looking at him as if he's totally nuts. And he finally lifts up a book. It's an illuminated manuscript. And he shows them the print and he shows them the pictures. And they suddenly realize the truth and the greatness of all of this. And there was just something about that holiness, that bigness, that flexibility of that that I... I, I, I love to read, I, 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 and, I, and I still do. I still do. I, I, I get a, absorbed in it. It draws me in, and I love to visit other people's minds. This is what I love about publishing: is this touring of other people's minds and getting intensely involved in other people's reality. And so, as you grew up and were in school, what did you get into reading in particular that you remember after that? Say later in elementary or high school and that kind of age. Let's see, what did I read in high school? Hey, you're a book reviewer. This is, this is, this is kind of taken into a kind of booky world here. So, uh, you're a publisher, man. Come on. <laughs> well, this is true. <laughs> this is true. You know, the kinds of things that I love to read were... Um, I love to read tales of exploration. I love to read these adventure tales. I love to read anything that would get me to hell out of the house, that would get me away from... And it's not that I grew up in terrible circumstances. I was well taken care of. We weren't particularly poor, but it was boring. There was something about it that was so damned boring. And you ended up looking at these other worlds that were out there. And I would read... First-hand accounts of like Livingston in Africa, about Lawrence of Arabia, about people going out into the world and having great adventures. I would read. Um, 
I, I, I would read novels all the time. I was forever reading novels, and I was forever reading these marvelous Victorian novels, these great Thackeray novels that just went on for 7,564 pages, and, uh, and, and just dwelling on these other worlds. And I would read... Um, when Mad Magazine came out, that was pretty good. <laughs> And then what I would, what I, what I, what I remember reading, what I, do, do you remember the blue books? Yes. Ju, Hall, Hall, Halderman Julius in, uh -huh. in Kansas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does anybody know the blue books of Halderman Julius in Kansas? Oh, my dear friends. This, so this was some autodidact that lived in the middle of Kansas, not far from Lawrence. And he put out these five-cent little pamphlets that you could buy for a nickel, little blue books. And they were all kinds of different subjects. And some of them were like the short stories of Guy de Maupassant. And some of them were how to play chess. And some of them were... The thoughts of Lenin and the thoughts of Trotsky and the thoughts of Engels. And, and, and I loved those thoughts, those, those communist thoughts. I mean, this was in the 50s. And I would end up going to this bookstore on Mass Avenue, and I would buy these nickel books, and I would sit on the bus, and you'd, and, and you'd hide them in your algebra book. And, 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 and you'd look at this, and it was talking about down with the capitalism, and down with... The, and, and it was so thrilling to me. It was like porn. And... and, and and I read that stuff, and then there was porn. Then there was uh, my, my, my second job. I was a caddy at the Brookline Country Club, and my father used to introduce me as the only Jew in the Brookline Country Club. And I think I was. And, and and there was somebody that smuggled in a Henry Miller book from Paris, and and, and we would sit around, and this was hot stuff. This was hot stuff, and and I always thought that. There was something about banning books that was the best thing in the world. <laughs> that that it, that it made it so valuable. I mean, that this book was so it, it was illegal and it was so valuable. And I loved reading about that. And and, and I just I, I, I sort of loved the act of reading. I just loved the act of reading. So you wound up at Harvard, which in the chapter I read said that it was like one long bar mitzvah. <laughs> I spent the whole time tolerating what I had to tolerate. <laughs> so what did you what did you study there? What did you uh, wind up focusing on or majoring in? Oh, I was so damn mopey. I mean, I was so. I, I think that I needed a few years just to get a. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm not getting the right spin on this, Steve. I was not. I was not miserable as a kid, but what keeps coming up was a desire to escape from that world, and, and, I, and, I, and it was. And I needed time to just get out from under the expectations of parents and society to find who I was, and I ended up spending a lot of time at Harvard. I ended up getting kicked out a couple of times and coming back, and uh, getting kicked out because I was a jerk and coming back because I didn't know what else to do except be a jerk. And... Uh, and I ended up graduating. I studied English literature because it was default. It was, it, it, it was what you studied when you didn't know what to study. Mm -hmm. And um, and I've always been embarrassed that I never used it as well as I should have. That there was all of these marvelous books and all of these marvelous people over there, and it was such a gift that I could have used better. But I didn't. I I, I used it as. Um, 
a spacer between childhood and adulthood. And, it, and, and I've always thought that it was, pe people have asked me whether it was a good place to be. And I think that it was a good place to be because it left me alone, and it left me alone in an environment of greatness, of great people, of great books, a kind of sense of that you were, that there were people over there that were at the top of their game, and they were just so amazing to listen to. What did you major in? Uh, government and political science. Oh, yeah. yeah. But that was a mistake. I should have majored, I should have majored in history and literature. I mean, you know, government and political science is a terrible thing to furnish your mind with. It's uh, you know, really second-rate stuff. I should yeah, have yeah, studied history. Yeah, it's second-rate stuff. But what I wanted yeah, and, to... And, and this current situation proves it. <laughs> There's actually an old story. Why, why does everybody at Harvard have a receding hairline? Because everybody goes, God, I should have majored in something else. <laughs> so you guys are proving it, both of you, right now. So... <laughs> So, I, I would argue that your real education began at Paragon Park oh. with a gentleman named George Keller. Would you tell us about Paragon Park and George Keller? Paragon Park was this grubby, grimy amusement park outside of Boston. It was in a place called Nantasket. And when I was a kid, the, the thing that I loved the most in this world was to play hooky and go to Paragon Park. And it had roller coasters, and it had Lindy Loops, and it had this marvelous underworld of guys with tattoos and sexy women and motorcycles, and it was grungy, it was downtrodden, and it was everything that I just thought of was great. And I ended up getting a job over there. There was this guy named George Shanker, Archie, and, and he had a pizza and hot dog stand over there. And I ended up working for five years as I was working, as I was getting through college, I worked there for five summers making hot dogs and pizzas. And, uh, and hamburgers, and it, I haven't thought about this for a while, and, and it was opposite a stage, there was a stage and there were acts that would come onto this stage, and I would watch these acts come onto these stages and, and these acrobats and lion tamers and uh, and there was this guy, he was called the Great Zucchini, and he was shot out of a cannon. He would crawl into a goddamn cannon, and somebody would light a fuse, and the guy would shoot through the air and land in a net. And then there was this guy, his last name was Solomon, and he would climb up a ladder a zillion feet up into the air, and he would jump down into a little pan of water. And, 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 and then there was um, Prince El Gordo, and Prince El Gordo was this statuesque big guy, he was African-American, he wore spangles, he was a lion tamer, and he would come out there and, and tame the lions, and one fourth of July, he came over and he looked at the planking on the stage, and he thought it was rotten, he was afraid that it would all fall through, and he refused to be on the stage anymore, and... Uh, so he so he just took his lions and went home, and, uh, and and it was the fourth of July, and they were hungry. They they needed an act, and the only act that was available in all of New England was Will Hill and his trained pigs. <laughs> 
So you had all these signs about Prince Elkai Guido and his lions. And then you looked up and there was Will Hill and his trained pigs. <laughs> but, but George Keller was um, a professor of art at... Pen it's fine art in Pennsylvania. Pen in, in, in fine art in, in Pennsylvania, yeah. in, in Penn State. He was a yeah. professor of fine arts. And he was an elegant man. And all of his life, he really wanted to be a lion tamer. All of his life, he wanted to be a lion tamer. And he finally ended up just quitting his job as head of the art department at Penn State. He had lions and tigers and jaguars and cheetahs and pumas, and they were all in a series of boxcars, like uh, that one after the other. And he came, would come into this park, and he would put in a big round cage, and one by one they'd drive these animals in, and he'd be sitting around with all of these amazing cats. And he has, and his wife was there. And his wife was a elegant woman who had married an art professor. <laughs> and, and, and now she was going around from one grudgy amusement park to the other park with this madman who, was, who, who had these lions. And then there was this big, rough, hairy guy that would stand outside the cage with a gun. And as, and as they were in there, ready to shoot a lion in case the lions attacked him. And he was this big, ugly, brutal guy with a gun. And there was this elegant woman that was, would sit there in, in, in this pizza shop having a cup of coffee, and she had a cigarette on a cigarette holder. And she was just, and, and, and she always looked as if she was going to a faculty event. And, 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 and then there was this nut who would, dry, who would dress himself up in, in wonderful costumes and, and, and tame all, and have all these lions and tigers and stuff. And then one year, he, he, they didn't come, and I asked. There was a guy named Roscoe who ran the, uh, who, who booked the acts, and I said, "What happened?" They said, "Kel got eaten by his lions. <laughs> that, he, that he got killed by the lions." And the next year, I look at the ranking, I look at the list, and the act is returning. So I, I said, "What the hell is this all about?" I mean, I, I don't believe in resurrection, but uh, what's? And they said they don't know, but the actors now could be booked again. It came in. That big hairy guy was now in the middle with the lions. The elegant wife was outside with the gun. <laughs> I've always wondered about it. I've always wondered about it. Formative, huh? But you, you from from the East Coast, you came out west. You did a lot of traveling around and a lot of camping, actually. And it seems like you early on had a real love of the outdoors and nature. And you even at one point came home. You said in here that you came home to your wife and child in Berkeley, and you said, "I realized that day people shouldn't live in houses." And you made the family move to a tent in a campground in the East Bay somewhere. <laughs> so for a while, anyway. Yeah, that but, was a mistake. But you, that was a mistake. <laughs> it's an experiment. But uh, you know, so you know, it, that I think that love of nature and the outdoors, and you know, for a better lack of a better term, ecology, has informed your publishing as well. Do you did, did you remember in particular how you started uh, enjoying that you know the outdoors and getting aware of that so much? What what I talk about was growing up in urban Boston, and it was these apartments in which they were just three floors and four people to a floor, and it was kind of run down. And, uh, 
and my mother was born in Lithuania or Russia, somewhere out there. And they were, they were continually lying about everything, so you could never quite tell where they were born or, whether, or who was related to who or why Uncle Jack couldn't be in the same room as Aunt so-and-so. And, 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 and it was a world of horrible secrets. Was, did you grow up in a world of horrible secrets? No, actually, I didn't. I did. Yeah, that must have been. I, I, I did. There was there were, there were things that couldn't be mentioned. There were things that couldn't be said. But my mother had absolutely no idea what nature was all about. She had no idea about natural history. But she would look out the back window in the backyard, and there were these little birds. There, there, were, there were two species of birds. There were fagels and fagola. And the, the, the fagels were big birds, which were pigeons, and the fagola were little birds, which were sparrows. And, 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 and the fagola were in the snow. They were going bovis, which is barefoot. And she was worried about them going bovis in the snow. And, and that, that, that their feet would get cold. And she would take a, a little a shissel, a little pan of milk, and she would heat up the milk, and she would put in some nice Jewish bread in the milk, and she would open the window and she would throw it out into the snow so that the birds would have some good Jewish bread cooked in warm milk. And this and, and this hot bread would hit the snow and it would tunnel down. <laughs> and the little birds were coming to they were kind of looking down in there. And this was not exactly your typical naturalist's background. <laughs> but, but what I've always felt was what, I, what, what she knew was something that other people didn't know, that those birds are like us. That they, their feet get cold, they like good Jewish bread. <laughs> that you take care of them, that you relate to them. And there was this kind of elementary uninformed, emotional love of nature that was there. Later on, I ended up having a friend at MIT, the most amazing man that I've ever met. I say this about almost everybody. Is this Walter Pitts? Walter Pitts. Yeah, summer of 1962. Yeah. 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 So w Walter Pitts was at MIT, and Walter Pitts was a, an absolute genius. Walter, and, and when I say genius, this you can Google this character. He was a mathematician. It was the Pitts McCullough formula, mathematical formula. He had been a part of the Manhattan Project as a very young man. He was so uh, he was utterly brilliant. And MIT had this guy Jerry Letvin over there, who was a magical character. And Jerry ended up getting him into MIT. They, they gave him money just to be there. He had no duties, just so that he would be there, so people could talk to him. And he would, and people would come around. And he had a photographic memory. And unlike other people with a photographic memory. Anything that came in connected with everything else. And he was widely read. He got bored once and he learned Nahuatl, the Aztec language. And his translations of Nahuatl poetry are still around. Another time he got bored, he learned ancient Greek. His translations of the minor Greek poets still emerge once in a while. He had a, an amazing mind. And I always felt that I didn't... that he. That anything that I knew, he already knew it, and he knew it better than I did. And and, and there was one time where he, I, I, where I, he would sit in King's Tavern at Harvard Square with piles of books, and I would come there and I would see him, and 
And, 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 and one year I took a course in uh, medieval travel literature just because I wanted to have something that he wouldn't know anything about. <laughs> and, I, and, and I came down there and he says, what are you taking? I said, medieval travel literature. He says, oh, you must be reading Mandeville. And he began to quote <laughs> from memory the Mandeville things. But he was a brilliant, he was an ecologist, he was a botanist. And... I went climbing with him. He, he, he was about 40 years old, and he worked with my friend Frank Axelrod, who I went to high school with. And at the age of 40, it's hard to find climbing partners. It's hard to find people that will go out with you. So Frank and I would go out with this charismatic guy out into the White Mountains, and we'd hike around. And there was one wonderful summer where we came out west, and we went through, we, we climbed in the... Mount Fremont in the Wind River Range, we climbed in the Olympics, we climbed in the Tetons, we climbed on the Columbia ice fields, and we just spent the summer hanging around and climbing. And I learned so much from this guy, and, I, and, he, and he was so, he was just astounding, he was just astounding. There was, you know, we've all known brilliant people. This was another magnitude of mind. What his great quest was, was he wanted to do the mathematics of aesthetics. That he was wondering, and, and the example that he would use is if you and I see a woman and we agree that she's beautiful, this can clearly be expressed mathematically. And it should have triggered me off that there was something deeply wrong. It's <laughs> a wonderful story. Steve? But you kept on, so you were uh, you actually did some work on in Parklands. Yeah, did uh, some work in Parklands, and I, I always felt that it was part of that upbringing. Isn't it funny? It's, it's funny hearing myself talk. That, <laughs> that, 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 that it, it seems like I was, and maybe this is the story of my life. Maybe I was escaping from something. That natural history was something that they never got to. They didn't know anything about it. It was fresh, and I could see it freshly, and I and, and I didn't know what to think about it. And I remember it. And and it was that wonderful year. I, I worked for East Bay Regional Park District for three years giving nature walks, I was a complete fraud, mm. uh, and doing environmental, doing restoration work. And, uh, and then there was that year in 1970, I, I worked for them for three years. Well, we, we came here my first, we, in 1970, we came in a VW bus and we settled into Berkeley and we had a kid and the kid was sick for several years and we thought he was going to die. We thought it, it, it seemed to be something just utterly terrible. And then, he, and, and then after, in 1972, the kid got better and I, I, I turned 30, it took me three years to turn 30. And I'd written another book that Houghton Mifflin gave me 10,000 bucks for. And I got fired from the East Bay Regional Park District. And I, and, and I just found myself with a 10,000 bucks, a healthy kid, 30 years old. And it was the most wonderful year of my life. I say that about many years. But it, but it, was, it was one of the most wonderful years of my life. <clears throat> and I spent it just hiking out in the hills, just exulting in the beauties of the world, just going to places and seeing how things grew and watching animals and watching plants. And every day I would go out in the rain, in the cold, in the sun, and just see what it was all about. And I ended up writing this goofy book, The East Bay Out, about hiking around in the East Bay. And, uh, and it had something to do... Uh, 
I don't, is this enough love of nature? Well, so, but then the other side of that too, yes. I mean, but you, you were writing, you wrote, you say it's at some point that you saw destruction of nature, clear cutting, something like that, and inspired you to write some articles and so forth too. Oh, yeah. So I just, how you began, you became an author to start. How I became an author? Well, as in terms of writing, you know, a journalist, you were doing some journalism really, right? Yeah, I was doing articles. some journalism that, so this VW bus, Came over. We came over and we we'd rented a car in '67 and come over to California at the summer of love. We were living in New York City, like all good people, <laughs> East 10th Street near Tompkins Square Park, which was a wonderful place to live in 1967. And uh, and, and we came over in the and, and we came to California in '67. Hey, so listen, we come over, and it's the summer of love, and we come over in 67, and I had no idea what California, I'd never been to California before, and we had a Rand McNally campground guide, and it had, and, and, and we were going from one place to another place and camping, and then there was this place in California just over the border called Yosemite, it was Yosemite <laughs> National Park, and it, and it had all these campgrounds in there, and, and, and I said, Yosemite? <laughs> This, my people. <laughs> so, so, so we come over the Tioga Pass and, 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 and we enter Yosemite Valley. And there were campgrounds, there were camp spaces. So we camp in these camping spaces. And the first day we end up taking our air mattresses out and blowing them up and floating down the Merced River on air mattresses. And the cliffs and the sun, the dappled light and the beauty and the balminess of the air and the coolness of the water. It was utterly beautiful. So we come, so we, we, we float down the Merced River and then at the end of the day we hitchhike back to our campsite and the next day we wake up and what better thing could you do? So we floated down the Merced River and the third day we ended up I mean, can you imagine anything better than this? So we floated down the Merced River and then uh, at the end of the third day, we come into uh, to Yosemite Village where the, where the lodge is to get some food. And there was a chronicle in one of those stands. And the headlines in the chronicle said, LSD causes birth defects. And we, and we sat by the side of the river just crying our eyes out because we could never have kids. <laughs> I've got three kids, <laughs> and, and if this is what birth defense looks like, I suggest it to everybody. <laughs> but it was a kind of baptism. It was a kind of cleansing. There was something about the water that was... I, I worked in Lady... Is it okay if I ramble? Hey, that's why we're here. So, <laughs> I was worried you weren't going to be very talkative. So <laughs> do I... Well, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> so I worked in later years with this guy named Ivan Illich, who was a wonderful old scholar from Vienna originally. And he was a man of just... He had a study center in Cuernavaca. He came up to California very often. He wrote a variety of books that were very popular during the 60s and 70s. And Ivan... 
it was this old European kind of scholarship. I'd go down to Cuernavaca and work with him on some stuff. He had a, a, this amazing study center with a medieval library and, uh, and, and, and all kinds of peculiar people that would show up. And, uh, and, and, and he assumed that I was a member of the educated community. And he assumed that as a member of the educated community, you spoke all the European languages. And I remember there was one time I was there with him, and he said, Malcolm, he says, you ought to read the Bulgarian writer so-and-so. And I said, Ivan, I don't read Bulgarian. And he said, it's okay, it's been translated into Italian. <laughs> but, 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 but in terms of in terms of the water, we I ended up working with him on a book that he called H2O in the Waters of Forgetfulness. And what he talks about, he begins this book with talking about how water we would the people would bring their children in, they'd come into water to they come to water to be baptized. How Lady Macbeth comes to water to wash out the sins of her crime. How in ancient Athens the dead were washed with water to wash out their memories so that the souls could go off to the next world in their purity. And the waters with the memories would collect in a well that was called Nemosthene. And sages and augurs and poets would come to that well of Nemosthene where the memories of the past had been kept. And he then comes out with the most amazing line. He says, at one time water purified us, today we have to purify water. What happened? Isn't that just a great That's line? Beautiful. It's just such a great line. That's fabulous. Yeah. yeah I wish you'd followed it up. You were into Native Americans then very soon, and you've, you know, obviously you're for the the book that Michael has just reread, Ohlone Way, has become, I read it in college, it was assigned to, you know, as a text, and I remember it still well. And, and the journal here that you mentioned as well, News from Native America. So how did that become sparked in you, that particular deep uh, interest? <clears throat> so I... There was a book that I sold to Houghton Mifflin called Earth Manual that they gave me 10,000 bucks for. And I got to write that book, I got 2,000 bucks from Stuart Brand from Point Foundation through Huey Johnson. And I, and I owe a whole lot to Huey and to Stuart and to Point and, for, and, and, to the, and, and to the whole wonderful world that grew up around the whole Earth catalog. It was very, was it important for you? Yeah, very. Yeah. Central. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and then I'd written a couple of, I'd, I'd written the Earth Manual, I'd written this book, East Bay Out, which I typeset and designed and published, and, and I loved doing it. I just loved doing it. I, and it was part of the whole Earth catalog world of self-sufficiency. And I've, I, I, I've often said that I've made every mistake in this world except one, and that was I never moved to Mendocino to raise goats. <laughs> <laughs> but... And goats and I would not have gotten along. <laughs> but this whole business of doing the book the way I did it was self-sufficiency. I wanted to be my own person. I didn't want to work for anybody. I wanted to be have things in my control. The mere fact that nobody else would publish the book also had something to do with it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, I loved the publishing of it. And at the end of this thing, I would take I would take these books in my VW bus, which I still had. And I would go around to all the bookstores in Berkeley, and I would go to the bookstores in the peninsula and places, and I would sell the books, and, and, and I would end up meeting various 
booksellers and give talks and and, and I, I was I, I just so loved it and I decided to do the next book on a, on a regional subject it would have to be a regional subject because this was the because the, the VW bus couldn't go very far yeah. <laughs> Hey, Larry and I have had some wonderful experience with those with VW buses. I mean, they, 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 they were just so. This was such a funny time. It was such a funny time. So I decided that what I would do, I, and I needed a quick book to write because we were out of money, and and this was a constant refrain in my life was we were out of money, and uh, and we were so goddamn broke that we had one light bulb that was going from one room to the other room, that, that, and, and 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 I and I needed a quick book to write. So I decided I would write a book about Indians in the Bay Area because nothing was known about them, because it would be a simple book. They were simple people. They ate an acorn once in a while. And I had a schedule up on the wall where I was going to give myself a luxurious three months of research and three months of writing. And this was plenty of time to learn everything about these simple people because there wasn't much to know. And I got into it, and I got into it, and I got into it. And I got into this amazing world, I just got into this astonishing world of pain, of beauty, of people that I would meet. I was, rem I was talking the other day about what it was like <clears throat> 40 years ago, where you go up these dirt roads into these reservations, these rutted dirt roads, and there was still outdoor plumbing, and there was still ramshackle houses, and there was cars, in disrepair up on blocks and there was trash and there were mean dogs and reservation dogs were spectacular and you'd go into somebody's house and they'd give me and I'd sit down in their kitchen and they'd give me the most wonderful food and I would be afraid to eat it because I was afraid that I would, the kids wouldn't have anything to eat that night and I was, I was so infuriated at the injustice of this world and what it had done to these people. And I was so amazed that in the midst of this destruction, out of the ashes were these sparks of beauty, of spirit, of history. It was just a marvel. It was, it was falling into the most amazing rabbit hole. <clears throat> and, and, and I developed some real friendships. I, hey, listen, people ask me why I'm into this. What I don't understand is why the hell isn't everybody into this? I mean, the stories are so profound. And as a publisher, you need good stories. And you need stories of pain, and you need stories of beauty. There were people alive back then that I would meet in the, in the mid-70s. People like Wallace Burroughs up at Grindstone Rancheria and Bertha Norton. Wallace died at the age of 102. Bertha died at the age of 100. Oscar McDaniel up there at Grindstone died at the age of 97. Around were people like Elsie Allen, who was a basket weaver from Santa Rosa. Laura Summersall. Laura Summersall from Geyserville. She was so astonishing. Laura, I'd go up to visit Laura. She was in her 90s. And I'd visit Laura and she'd look at me and she'd say, well, Malcolm, do you have a cigarette? I'd say, well, I gave up smoking. She says, did you bring me any young men? I'd say, no, no, no I didn't. Say, well, what, what good are you? <laughs> And, and, and her nephew, Clint McKay, was telling me this wonderful story about Laura, where he was, at, he, he was visiting her in Geyserville, and, she, and he was going to get some abalone at um, 
Stewart's Point. He was going down to Stewart's Point for abalone. And she said, while you're there at Stewart's Point, get me some of that good seaweed. So he goes down to there and he collects the abalone and he's driving back and he says, I forgot Laura's seaweed. So he stops at a beach and he gets some seaweed and he brings it back and she cooks it up and she says, this isn't from Stewart's Point. <laughs> so, so, so there were these amazing old people who were born in the 1890s in the, the turn of the century, and they themselves had been brought up by people that remembered California before the gold rush. And it was this direct linkage with this old world. It was this direct linkage with the beauty of it, with the rootedness of it, with the nobility of it, with the spirit of it, with the violence of it, with the black magic, the undercurrent of magic and black magic and poisonings that made the world so damn rich and so wonderful. People don't talk about that anymore. Everybody's become so pious. But there was, a, there was another world back there that made it real. And there was people that turned into bears and people that did horrible things. And, and it was so rich. And I'd, I'd meet these people. And they were so extraordinary. They were so extraordinary. And uh, so what I, what, what my, my spiritual practice is deep hanging out. So in, in these Indian reservations, you have people that understand deep hanging out. Didn't Clifford Geertz call anthropology that, 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 deep hanging out? I think it was Clifford yeah. Geertz that called yeah, right, anthropology exactly. deep hanging right, out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what I do. Right. And, and, and it comes naturally. Right. <laughs> well, you're into, this is volume 26 now of News from Native America. Yeah, it's been out for 25 years. Yeah, you've been doing this a long time. I'm just wondering, I, I only had one experience. I, I had a, an assignment from a magazine many years ago to write about Native American music, and I went to reservations, but the only way I was able to get access and have trust was to be basically endorsed and handed from person to person to say, this guy's okay. I'm wondering, have you, you know, I may be wrong, but I don't think you're Native American. Um, have you had... Um, I, I was an Ohlone princess in a previous lifetime. There you go. <laughs> I, I hope this is being recorded. It is. It is. Have you, have you encountered, I mean, how, you know, obviously now you're, you know, anybody who knows you would know you're fine, but early on, did you encounter suspicion, mistrust, um, you know, and it's justifiable often, right, in terms of history. But uh, how did you get, uh, you know, to be so trusted? I don't know. Okay. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I, I just, um, hey, listen, I, I don't want to be, I'm not an Indian. I don't want to be an Indian. I don't want anything from anybody. I'm a journalist. I'm a good journalist. I tell people's stories. I, I return, I, I, I genuinely like the people that I deal with and don't deal with people I don't like. That um, I'm in there, there, there were times when people were suspicious of me. I remember I once gave a talk at um, Laney College when the Ohlone Way came out and it was, AIM was at its peak then. Mm -hmm. And there were these big beefy guys sitting in the front row with their arms crossed and I knew I was gonna get it, I knew I was in for it. And at the end of this, one of them growls at me, why don't you leave our culture alone and deal with your own culture? And my response was, that's, just, that's a really great question. That's a wonderful question. And I think that I would, and why don't we just go off afterwards and let's, and, 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 
I'd love to discuss it. I mean, I think there are things in this culture that need to be known. There are things in this culture that need to be public. If I'm getting it wrong, I'll check out and leave it to somebody else. But I think I've gotten it right. And, uh, and hey, listen, I'm just doing the best I can. And, uh, and I, I don't pretend to understand more than I understand. I, when I'm in there... I. I, I'm sharing my own life. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm not just giving people, I'm not just taking information, I'm giving information. I'm, I'm telling stories. I'm, and, and, and I have something, this business of having publication, I have something to deliver to the potluck. Mm -hmm. and, and I made sure that News from Native California is voices, it's, it's written mostly by California Indians, and, they're, and, 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 and I wanted to get at people's own sense of themselves, at people's own capacity to tell their own stories. And the um, and watching, we had the most. It, it, this whole thing has just been utterly extraordinary. We had about six or seven months ago. I had twenty Indians. We have a, a, a wonderful conference room up in our office, and I had about twenty Indians come up from the Bay Area to this conference room, and I invited some foundations to come and listen to them, and talk about where. Indian life was heading in the Bay Area for the next five years and how foundations can support the best of this. And it was a, and, and it went around the room and people introduced themselves. And it came to a young man, Vincent Medina. And Vincent Medina is an Ohlone, he's a Chechenyo Ohlone from the East Bay. He grew up in San Leandro. He traces his ancestry to the Oakland, Berkeley, San Leandro area. He's relearned the language of that area from wax cylinder recordings that this guy Juan Guzman had left behind in the 1920s from Mission San Jose. He's learned his language. He's, a, he's, he's absorbed the history, he's absorbed the, cult, the culture. And it came to him and he said, my name is Vincent Medina. I'm 26 years old, I'm a, I'm a Chechenyo Ohlone from this area. I know my language, I'm practicing my customs and my culture. I didn't have the same experience that other people in this room have had. I've never experienced that prejudice, I've never been looked down upon. I grew up in a different age. I don't have that anger in me. I've got my language, I've got my culture, I'm taking it somewhere where it's never been. So, so I hired the guy. <laughs> He's not working for us. And I realized I've been looking for this guy for 40 years. And it's a new, it's a new world. So you... Uh, hey, hey, listen, I that, that first book was essentially the beginning of Heyday, too, right? No, the East Bay Out was the beginning of well, Heyday. Oh, but it was and, published I, and, and clearly I'm emotionally involved in this stuff. Yes. I mean, this is not... It's a professional involvement. I make my living doing it, but I'm I'm I'm, I'm completely emotionally involved in what I do. So, uh, let me just say that immersing myself in your work for the last couple of weeks has been a completely extraordinary experience. Mm -hmm. And and let's go from your biography into the great subject matter of your life, which is California Indian experience. It seems to me the first book, The Ohlone Way, was, as you said, Indian life in the San Francisco Monterey Bay area, and then the way we lived expands to all of California. Isn't yeah. that correct? Yeah. And so you went from <clears throat> this depth immersion mm. in the microcosm of the San Francisco Monterey Bay area 
to all of California. And as you said, with this extraordinarily deep immersion that you're not trying to be an Indian, you are who you are, and yet you have something to bring that is helpful. Um, uh, just for people who don't know, there was something like, and I can't remember exactly, but something like 500, uh, 500 tribes in California. Uh, yeah, there, there were 500 politically independent groups. There were right. about 100 different languages, right. and not just dialects, but languages. Right. And there were, and, and there was a, a variety and a display and a variety of customs, a variety of ways of living. There were people that lived in wooden houses up on the Klamath River. There were people that lived in underground houses in the Central Valley. There were people that lived in Thule houses in this area. There were people that lived in, sm in the desert, people living in small tribes that wandered over great distances. In the, around the Santa Rosa area, villages of a thousand people that had stability and had structures of chiefs and sub-chiefs and officials. They were, it, it, the, the variety of people, the variety of languages, the diversity was so immense. You quote a 19th century ethnographer who said that you had to learn a new language every 10 miles yeah. when you traveled. Yeah, that was, that was, that was powers. Yeah, yeah, that was powers. Yeah. So this extraordinary diversity, and in fact, uh, uh, the Ohlone, for example, or the Miwok, they didn't think of themselves as a people. Those were, those were words that were applied later yeah. as kind of groupings. But in fact, each tribelet, as you use the word, thought of itself as a separate unit. Is that broadly yeah, correct? They were, yeah. He, our minds can't cope with this degree of chaos. We, there's something in us that wants to categorize. So we create categories of people that never existed. We give them names that we place on them, and we expect them to act as a unified group. It was so dispersed, and there was a joy in this dispersion. There was a joy in this difference. Does anybody remember Bun Lucas? Yeah, so, so Bun lived up on Kashaya Reservation. He, he grew up in Kashaya Reservation. He, he died maybe about 10 years ago. He was the sweetest, loveliest old guy. And Bun grew up at the age... He, he never really spoke any English until he was about five years old and got sent to school. And, 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 and he, he knew the Kashaya language with such great depth and such great love. And I got him a job up at Cal teaching in the linguistics department with Leanne Hinton, who was a linguist, and he was teaching a field methods course. And this is a course in which somebody could interview somebody that had a strange language, an unknown language, and from the series of interviews, get a vocabulary, get a grammar, get a text, get the sound system. And it was teaching a linguist how to do field work. So Bun was wonderful. So, so Bun would come down from Santa Rosa, where he was living, and the only place he knew how to get to in Berkeley was my house. So he would arrive in front of my house about four hours early, and he'd sit in this old car reading copies of The Inquirer. <laughs> and by the time I arrived home, he was filled with stuff about crop circles and alien babies and stuff like that. <laughs> and I picked one up and we'd head off to the linguistics department. But there was one class in there that was so revelatory. He was there, I think in Kashaya there are six different gutturals, the sound. And they're all different letters of the alphabet. They're all different. The ha. 
Hey, is this being podcast? Yes. <laughs> so, 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 so there were all these different there were all these different gutturals, and he had a particular word. I forget aha, maybe something like that. And it was a word for something like land. I, I, I forget exactly what it was, but the students were trying to get the right guttural, and he go aha, and they go aha, and they go no 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 aha, and they go aha, and finally they got it. And then he says, but that's not how my aunt Annie used to pronounce it. <laughs> Annie lived, came from a place called Rock Pile, which was about two miles away from Kashaya. And she used to pronounce it, aha. And, and then they finally got that. And, and that's not how my cousin Gladys pronounced it. <laughs> and, and, and you end up having this, this little tribe. Of, they, were, they were never more than about three or four hundred people. And they each had their own way of speaking. They, these little villages had their way of speaking. And we have this assumption Conquest. We have this assumption of cultural conquest that of mer- we, we live in a world of merging cultures, but there was something that was going on there that was a dispersion of culture. There was a breaking down of things into independent and vibrant entities, and it was closely connected with land. It was close, and there was such a pride in being different. There was, and and there was such an amazingly intense knowledge of land. There was such an amazingly in- the land had stories. I loved. I, I've spent years going out with Indians into their landscape and just listening to them talk about it all. That um, my friend Daryl Wilson is a storyteller. He's had a stroke in recent years, and he's um, he's, he's he's in pretty rough shape. But and, he, and he's been in rough shape for a while. And, and he grew up in Achamawi, Atsugiwi country, out, out around Alturas. And he had a rough childhood, parents dead early, alcoholism, foster homes. And that he came out of it with such sweetness of soul is something that I just is, a, is an endless miracle to me. I just don't know how this happens. I just don't know how this happens. But I, I, but, but I, I really, Daryl's been a good friend. We published one of his books. And he's been a wonderful friend. And, and about 10 years ago, there was a conference that somebody was putting together in Surprise Valley. Does anybody know where Surprise Valley is? Yeah, Surprise Valley. Over, it's, it's in the other side of it's Morak County. It's on the big basin side. There's, uh, it's a small town, Cedarville, out there. And there was this guy that had a local newspaper that was putting it on. And he invited me and Gary Snyder and... Eldridge Moore, the ge- geologist, and he told Gary that I would come if Gary would come, and he told me that I would come if Gary would come, and then he told Eldridge that I, that he if, if if he would come, Gary and I would come, and he set the whole damn thing up, and we came out down there, and we found out there, there, there are, this is an organizing principle. <laughs> there, 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 ought, there ought to be a name for this. So I figured as long as I was going there, I would bring Daryl, and Daryl had had a stroke, and Daryl was half deaf and slurring and he was slumped over and he came up, he was living in San Jose and somebody drove him up and I stuck him in the car and I knew I'd made a dreadful mistake and we were driving up that long road to Reading up 80 and 505 and then up 5 to Reading and he was so uncomfortable and he was so deaf and he was so miserable to be with and then we take that road that goes from Reading to El Torres and we enter his home country 
that road over there is where Craven Gibson used to live. And Craven Gibson would tell us stories in the old language. That road is where my aunt lived. And she, we would go up, and she would make us acorn and deer meat. On that corner was a bar that would serve underage kids, and we'd go there and drink. On that corner is where my aunt, brother Melvin got into an automobile accident and got killed. That waterfall over there has a power in it that and he, he would talk about what the power did. That jumble of rocks is where Coyote was chasing a woman and dislodged those rocks. That flatland over there is where women were collecting opus roots and the cavalry came and killed everybody except my grandmother. And the place was so loaded with story. And, and, and by the time we got to Cedarville, he was completely revived. He was a new man. He hooked up with somebody and got laid. <laughs> He was cured. He was cured. And there was something about drawing power and story from this place where he knew. And I just love following people around when place had that capacity. The richness of it is just the the loss of these stories is so profound. When the I, 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 I spent a lot of time reading the diaries of the first explorers that came in the Potola expedition, and the first thing they do is they erase the names. They name this peak it's Mount Diablo. They arrange. They, they name this river the Sacramento. They name this. Creek San Juan Capistrano because we've discovered it on San Juan Capistrano's birthday. They name things, they, they take away the names, they obliterate the story. It, it's, it's the process of erasure. But somehow or other, you still have among some of these old people some memory of what this, what, what this was. You know, one of the things that becomes so clear in your books is in addition to this incredible 500 tribes, over 100 languages, um, was the unbelievable abundance of nature in which they lived. And so, and in fact, one finds this around the world, that very often the places with the greatest biodiversity also have the greatest ethnic diversity, mm -hmm. and the two are deeply linked. So you had in California this incredible biodiversity, the lushness of nature, and this incredible lushness of, of, uh, of diversity of tribes. And, and so it seems to me, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that as you came into this and found your love of it, that you were faced both with the immense richness of what you discovered and the true in the careful sense of the word, holocaust of life that took a population that before the white people came was what in California? It was... Well, it, nobody knows for sure. Right. They, they often say 300,000, which is not very many, but that, right. that, 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 that's the conservative Which were reduced number. to 20,000 or something? Yeah, it, it went down from... Three, from the the, the 20,000 was measured. Right. So from something like 300,000, who knows, down to 20,000. And then the population builds up again, but so much of the culture has been lost. And so you come into this when the old people are still alive, and then you witness that even with these fragments of culture, that uh, Indian people continue to move forward. Uh, and you are witness to these efforts uh, to and you say that even though so much of the the culture itself was lost, that there was a t 
tonality of people that continued. Now, do I have that yeah, correct? That. In yeah. other words, the, the, the state that you studied originally, the true holocaust of both life and nature that took place, the incredible decimation, and then uh, the effort to live through the holocaust and, and create something out of what remains. Yeah, there was, there was the Holocaust, and, and, and it was, I mean, it was genocide. The, 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 the people were just hunted down, they were shot, they were killed, there was disease, there was, uh, it, it was horrifying, it was utterly horrifying. I remember once that I was hired by the State Indian Museum to do an exhibit on the gold rush. This was several years ago at the 150th anniversary of the gold rush. So I went off to my friend April Moore, who's Nishinan Indian from Mount, from Auburn Rancheria, because April had a aunt, Lizzie Enos, and Lizzie Enos had gotten the memories from these older people and would tell stories. I remember Lizzie would tell these wonderful stories about the gold rush and what had happened during that period of time. So I call April and I say, hey, April, I'm doing an exhibit on the gold rush. I want to come down and see you and get some of Lizzie's stories. And she says, well, she says, you, you can't come over the house. My daughter's just moved back in. My brother Alan has just moved back in. The house is a mess. Why don't I meet you over at the Plaza County Courthouse? So I said, why there? And she says, well, because we've given them some baskets. There's a museum down there that I know these people. They'll give us a table. They'll give us a room, and we can talk over there. So I go down to the Plaza County Courthouse, which is in uh, Auburn, and it's a big stone building, and we come down into the basement, and I interview April Moore, and I love April Moore. I saw her over the weekend. She's so classy. She's so funny. And, and she was talking about these memories of Lizzie, what, what Lizzie had rec recounted. And among the things that I struck me as so poignant was that when women would bring their kids into Auburn, into the, into the town, they would dirty them up and they would dress them in rags so that the whites wouldn't kidnap them. And when I, when I was a kid, you'd go downtown, that's when you would get dressed up to be shown off. And here was something that, 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 that it, was, it was somehow or other a symbol of the, the fear that people lived in. And she would told me various other stories, and I got them down. And we walked outside, and she says, I'll bet you're wondering why, you wanted me, why I wanted to meet you at the Placer County Courthouse. And I said, well, it's because your daughter's moved back in, and your brother Alan is back in, and the house is a mess. She says, well, that's true, but there's another reason. She says, look at that stonework. My grandfather was the, did that stonework. When you talk about Indians, make sure you mention that. And, and, it, and it's somehow or other these people do not live in the past. They live in the present. They have, and, and they have present history. They have present lives. And these lives are as valid as the old lives. And it's been, and it's been wonderful to see the courage of people. We started, we helped start this language group for people relearning their own language. And this has been so beautiful as these languages were down to, back in the early 90s, we did a survey of California Indian tribes to see who was speaking some of these old languages. And some of these languages were down to their one or two speakers. And we'd end up, and we helped create something, a master apprentice program with some of the old people could teach young people the language. And 
the poignancy, the drama of it all was just so immense. And people relearning. I remember that um, there was a wonderful old woman, I just loved her, Georgina Troll. She was lived on the Klamath River up above Johnson Bar. And she was Yurok, and she was aristocratic Yurok. She was not common Yurok, she was high Yurok. Talth is what they called it. And she spoke a high Yurok language. There were class distinctions out there, by the way. And she spoke a high Yurok language. And she was the last speaker that I knew of that was speaking this high Yurok, maybe Minnie Macomba spoke it, but she was the, the, the last one that had the fluidity, that had the depth, that knew it from the core of her being, that had grown up with it. And, 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 and you couldn't let this thing die. So we had to find an apprentice for her. But it had to be an apprentice from the upper classes. <laughs> so she, she, wouldn't, she didn't want anyone, any of the commoners could, couldn't speak this language. So we found Carol Korb, who came from a good family. And Carol Korb was acceptable. And we got some money together and we funded them. And a couple of months later, I see Carol and I say, how's it going, Carol? And she says, Malcolm, she says, this is the most horribly degrading experience that I've ever had. And I said, what's wrong? She says, I've been there for two or three months now and I'm still learning how to count. And I said, learning how to count? What's, what's the big deal about counting? There are 21 different ways of counting in the Yurok language, depending on what's being counted. <laughs> that three people are not the same as three glasses, are not the same as three myths. And she'd sit there with old Georgina, and Georgina would say, and, and, and she would say something like, how do you say three books? And she'd use the word introducer. Oh no, you can't do that. If you say that, bad things will happen. <laughs> And, and, and these languages had such immense complexities, the grammatical structure of them, the, the, the way they would focus your mind on things, the way they would focus your mind on things was so amazing. Which way is north? North? That way. So if I'm sitting over here, in English I would say this is my right hand. And I, and I would say something like I'm going to head out the door toward the right. In Wintu language, that's north. This is my northward arm. If I were to turn around, this arm would become my southward arm. That you don't stand there at the center of the world giving it direction. You, you take your direction from the world around you and you change according to where you are. And there were things in these languages that are so poignant and so beautiful. And the musicality of them, to hear some of these languages. I go around with my kids, we go off to um, these Indian reservations. And when they were little, I'd take them off. And one of the funniest stories in that biography that Kim Bancroft did of me was bringing my youngest kid, Jake, remembers that I'd taken him up to Hoopa for 10 days of brush dance. 10 days of a repetitive dance to stamp the world back into balance. I've, there's an expression to die of boredom. I thought the kid was literally going to die. And uh, at the end of the 10 days, there was this salmon feast. And they had the, the, the way they have the salmon feast, they have a pit and a, a long trough. And they have coals and they have the salmon around it. And, and, and we're coming up and he tells me, he says, I hate salmon. And my comment was, you f that salmon or I'm going to kill you. <laughs> 
but 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 these there's something I was leading up to. So, but but these kids, my daughter Sadie would come around to these things, and this was in the 70s, and they were still speakers of those old languages that knew it from the core of their being, and we go off and we hear Miwok and we'd hear Yokuts the various Yokuts languages, and we'd hear the Achamawi language and the Kawia languages, and all these old languages. And I realized that Sidi was probably going to be, when she's an old woman, she'll be the last person alive that will have heard that range. And it's such a peculiar thing. You, you, you know, a couple of months ago, I was down in Baja, California. And when the border was put in it, it, between Mexico and, and the United States in the 18, 1850 or so, it cut off the Kumeyaay Indians. So there were the Kumeyaay Indians that lived north of the border, and they got San Diego. And then there were the Kumeyaay Indians that lived south of the border, and they got Mexico. And the ones that were north of the border got acculturated, they lost their language, they lost their culture, they got some casinos, and they've changed. The ones south of the border are living in these poor mountain villages, and I was up there, and there were people, it was, it was like California during the 19th century. There were people living in old houses with ramadas. They were still monolingual people that spoke only Kumeyaay language, and it was... It was, it was this other world, and you'd find these amazing women, these amazing older women, and they were like, they were so rooted in themselves, there was so much humanity there. Some of their kids had died, They're, they'd been betrayed all of their lives, they had, there was nothing you could do to them. There was absolutely nothing you could do to them that would hurt them. And they lived with such grace, and they lived with such presence and such being. You see people like this, you just don't believe it, that this is what the human race could be, is people could be like this. And, and, they, was, and they were funny as hell. They were so damn funny. I went with this friend of mine who lived down there and was dealing with these people and getting their crafts out so that they could keep these crafts alive. And he was about 50 years old and he'd never been married. This is like catnip. You drop somebody like this into an Indian village, and the joking, the the desire to hook them up with somebody. It, these old women were so damn ruthless and so damn funny and so mean. So, what was happening in West Marin before white people got here? What was life like in West Marin before white people got here? There was a casino over in San Rafael. <laughs> <laughs> that was making millions of dollars. And let's see what was here. <laughs> well, there were groups of people that were living around Tamales Bay, and uh, they lived in small villages. They spoke a language called Coast Miwok. And my wonderful friend David Perry was Coast Miwok, and I created with him the News from Native California 25 years ago. And he led a life of such amazing chaos. I don't know if anybody knew David Perry. It was a life of such deep chaos that I, you couldn't believe that anybody could get away with a life like this. And his, and his grandmother was 
Anne Ballard, I think her first name was. I think it was Anne. Her last name was Ballard. It was the Ballard family. It was a descendant of Tom Smith, who was this shaman that had lived in Bodega Bay, who was known for his just tremendous powers and for his capacity to, to cause earthquakes and to obliterate enemies and to help the sick. And Mrs. Ballard was the last speaker of this wonderful of this wonderful language of West Marin County. And in about the 1950s, there was a linguist from back east, Catherine Callahan, was doing some salvage work on this language. And she came and she talked to Anne Ballard, and she wanted to just get these different words down and get the last of... They they, they had a vocabulary that was taken by an, an anthropologist named Kelly. But she wanted to do some just follow-up and see what what other little drops of information you could wring out. And Mrs. And one day, Anne Ballard asks the linguist, you know, she says, there's a word that keeps coming up in my mind, and I don't remember what it means, but this word, and she mentions what the word is. And the linguist goes back, and Catherine Callahan goes back, and she looks it up in the dictionaries, and she traces it back. And she comes up, and she says, well, as near as I can see, it's the second person interrogative of the verb to urinate and, uh, and, and, and and Mrs. Bell says what do you mean? And she says I think it means did you pee? And she says oh yes at night my grandmother would tuck me in <laughs> and this is the word that she would use the, um, there were there was some, there's been a fair amount of stuff that's archival that's been from Isabel Kelly. You published Betty Girk's book. We published Betty Girk's book on Chief Moran. On Chief Moran. On Chief Moran, and who was a, a liminal figure. He was in there in the early mission days the, uh, and gave your county its name. Hey, so people lived on the shellfish. They lived on... Dear me, they lived seasonally. They lived, I remember once I was following this old character up through the hills, and we were up in the hills in Marin County, and the elderberry was blossoming. It was somewhere around May, and the elderberry was blossoming. And it was this marvelous, fragrant elderberries. And I was, I'd, been, I'd been collecting stories about elderberries, about how they made flutes out of elderberries. And do you know what elderberry tree is going to make the best flute? Because you'd come on a windless day, and you'd see a leaf fluttering around. And that was the elderberry that had music in it. And, the, and, and then you'd have the use of the elderberries and the clap of sticks that were made out of elderberry. And there was this beautiful, this wonderful scented flowers that were there. And I said, aren't these flowers beautiful? And he said, yes, but they make me sad. I said, why do they make you sad? He says, because when the flowers are out, we can no longer collect shellfish. So I said, oh, so that's how you know. When can you collect the shellfish? He says, the elderberry tells us this. It's when the berry ripens in the fall. We can go back and collect shellfish. And it, it, it keyed me to the most wonderful... I started to trace it out, and it's fragmentary. Is the 
phenomenological calendar in which events were linked. So you'd have strawberries would ripen, was one of the big events of this area, was the ripening of the strawberries. And you'd have strawberry festival, which is still being done. And this would mark the ripening of the strawberries. And then four days later, you knew you could go to a certain hillside and collect the brodea bulbs would be ripened. And then you, you would wait for a wren to come in. And the wren would sing a certain song. And you knew the salmon would be running in another couple of days. And all of these things were linked by time. And they, people lived in small villages. And I often thought about what it was to live in these small villages that we would never see a stranger. Maybe in your... Uh, years would pass and there, would, there were no strangers. You knew everybody. You knew them. You knew their parents. You knew their grandparents. You knew their kids. That you, you were well known in that world. And you were never alone in that world. That you were always with somebody. The women were always with somebody. They were pounding acorn. They were collecting. They were making basket. The men were out hunting. That you were always with somebody. And there was something in that society that was so deeply textured. There was a wonderful linguist that was up in the Miwok country, up in um, the Sierra, and she was recording the language. It was the South Sierra Miwok language. And she was recording the language, and she would ask somebody to tell me a story, and the person would tell a story. And she'd ask somebody what a sentence meant, and the person would tell her. But then she wondered what would happen if the Indian, when people talk among themselves, do they talk differently? So there were these two antique women. They were in their 90s, Rose and Lizzie. And Rose and Lizzie are sitting around, and this linguist says, can you talk in Indian about baskets? And they start talking. And Rose says, she wants us to talk about baskets. And Lizzie says, yes, she wants us to talk about baskets. And Rose says, we're going to have to talk about baskets. And Lizzie says, well, why don't we talk about baskets? And Rose says, well, that's what she wants us to do. And Lizzie says, we people made a lot of baskets in the old days. And Rose says, yes, they made a lot of baskets in the old days. And Lizzie says, everyone made baskets. It was going on and on like this. And I was reading it because I wanted to find out about baskets. And I was wondering when these two old ladies are going to get down to essentials. But there was something in that... They had all the time in the world. They had all the time in the world. And they were weaving that conversation was like a basket. There were rhythms and repetitions. And there was just the pleasures in each other's company. They didn't have anything to say. They each knew what everybody was into. They all, there, was not, there was no news in those old villages. They, you knew everything. But there was just that elementary joy in somebody else's companionship and somebody, in being with somebody else. The, um, One of the things that you talk about in The Way We Lived, which is a really extraordinary book and a wonderful quote, uh, but is um, the nature of dream time and, the, and just how deeply integrated uh, dream time was um, and how in many respects dream time um, was even more real than the real world in many of these communities, that it was that it was more, uh, it, it, that it was closer to the heart of the reality of things. Yeah, dream time was funny. That <coughs> dreams are funny. I mean, uh, dreams. They're so peculiar. I mean, the, the things that happen in dreams are just so odd. But there was this sense that you, when you dreamt, 
you were you 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 were visited by somebody else. You were visited in the other world. <clears throat> and there was the most. I have a wonderful friend, Preston Arrowweed. And Preston Arrowweed is Kachan from the Colorado River. He's our age. He was born in 1940. He, 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 he's the, the only person I know of our age, of our generation, that still grew up in a mud wattle hut at the, side of the, at the side of the river. He spoke nothing but Kumeyaay and Kachan as a youngster. Every month they would go to Fort Yuma for some food, and every month he, he would he would get, see white people, and then he'd go back in to the to this house where it was totally Indian world. And at the age of five, they drag him off to school, and they drag him off to school. And there was a couple of things that just absolutely amazed him. One of them was that there was so much food that you could have so much food. He had never seen so much food, and you could eat it all the time. And the other thing that happened to him back then was that he didn't speak any English. So he, um, and they had a school play. So he took the part of the rain, and, he, and the kids were all on the floor, and he spread his arms out, and he went like this to make raindrops. And all the kids rose up, and he thought it was the most wonderful thing that could have happened. <clears throat> he later on took lessons with Jay Silverside, Silverside the guy that played Tonto with the, with, with the Lone Ranger. Jay Silverheels. Who was it? Yeah. S Silverheels? Silverheels. Yes, yeah, Silverheels. And, 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 and he became an actor, and he wrote plays about the Kachan life. But what I, what I wanted to talk about was he was a singer of the bird songs, and these bird songs are cycles of songs that are sung down there. They go on for four straight nights, and they go on, they're sung during the winter time when the nights are the longest, and you, the songs are linked verses, and they recount the wanderings of divinities over the world, and how the divinities came and they went here and they did this, and they went there and they did this, and it sanctifies the landscape, and it gives the history of place. And there was one time where he was coming, the, 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 the divinities were coming down the Colorado River. And then at one point they leave the Colorado River and they go five miles to the west. And then they come south again and they rejoin the river. And he wondered, why did they do this? Why did they leave the river? And he was once out with some archaeologists and they pointed out that this was the old bed of the river. And the song had remembered the old bed of the river. It was still following that old bed. And the river had changed, but the song hadn't. Where I'm getting to your question was, in the 1890s, there was a man who had a dream. And in that dream, Worldmaker came to him. And Worldmaker said, why did you summon me? And this man who was called Dreamer said, I don't know. And Worldmaker says, I think I know. You want to revisit the creation of the world. And Dreamer said, yes, that's what I would like to do. And Worldmaker says, let me gather Coyote and First Man, and we're going to revisit the creation, the, 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 the creation of the world. And that's a one-night song cycle that was dreamt by this Dreamer who would go... That, follows the creation of the world and brings it up to date. And, uh, and things are dreamt. There were dreamers. There was the Boli Maru cult, of, which is 
something as a religious revival it was ghost dance that revived religion in Northern California. And you had people like Essie Parrish over at Kashaya that would be a dreamer and she would have these tunics that she would wear with dream symbols on them. And some of the, and there were wars that were fought with the general at night would dream about what to do when the dreams were followed. There was a wonderful creation story where there was a story of a guy, let me see if I can remember this. Oh yeah, the, it was down toward Owens, Owens Valley. And the guy was down there, and he would climb up. And, and, and in his dream, he would go to the top of a mountain. It was Birch Mountain. And Birch Mountain was his strength. It was his power. And he would go up to Birch Mountain. And then when he got to the top of Birch Mountain, he, Worldmaker was there. And Worldmaker came, invited him into his house. And Worldmaker told him how the world was created. And the guy went back to the elders and says, I was at the top of Birch Mountain. And they said, yes. And he says, and Worldmaker told me how the world was created. And they said, what did Worldmaker tell you? So he repeats it. And they said, you didn't get it right. So he had to go back and dream it again. <laughs> and he dreamt it several times until finally they said, that's the true story. There was something so mysterious about this dream world, and there was something so porous about the way the mind just floats out into the world and things float into it. I don't think, I think we, you know, I was thinking the other day that when, we, when we're young kids, we grow up and we create walls, and we create walls to defend our sense of personality. We defend, we, we, we create walls to, to encompass our personality. And at a certain point, your battle in life becomes to get those damn walls away and to see the world as it is and not to have to look at the world through the walls you've created. And I think that those dream worlds were worlds without walls. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. I'd like to open this up now. Uh, hey, we do other stuff besides Indian stuff. I mean, um, and um, let me ask this. I'd like to start with people with uh, some special knowledge either of Malcolm and Heyday or history or knowledge of Indian culture. I just want to start with anyone who sort of brings some piece of special knowledge to the table, in case there are any people here, uh, any people of Indian descent, uh, anybody who wants to bring something into the conversation of regional substance. Yes. Um, well, oh, hey. hey, how are you? <laughs> Uh, I love East Bay Out. That's a wonderful story with your son and you uh, in the water. Oh, that, that, in the canoe up there. That was uh, up on, Bro on Brown's Island. Yeah. yeah, that was great. Um, well, there, this, well, one thing I have always been amazed by is how when Indian kids seem to get to the, what you could think of as the age of embarrassment, like age 13 to 15, that's when you see them turning up at these events, dancing and learning the culture that, that, that's so uh, different from <coughs> mainstream kids who usually find that period of time as a time to reject everything that their parents life and culture and perhaps find it boring as you were expressing about your childhood. Yeah. So I just 
do you have any insight into that? I did once hear a parent say to the kid when they were dancing, I'll give you some candy. <laughs> but um, I've you just know, always been baffled. You know, Judith, I'm not sure why. I'm not, I'm not sure why. But you're right. That a lot of kids, they put themselves out at that age and... Um, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, not, and and I, I never articulated it before, but now that you've mentioned it, I've observed it. And that, um, hey, listen, there's something about, so I come from this Jewish world that I've left behind. If I were the last person around, I think that I would end up learning Yiddish again and adhering to those customs because it would depend on me. There are enough loonies out there that are doing this, so I don't have to do it. Uh, there's... Um, I've had the same impulse. Huh? I've had the same impulse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, so, so I, I, it's not my responsibility to keep something alive because other people are doing it. I think there's something about these kids, that they reach an age where they suddenly see what that old world was, and you get a glimpse of that old world, and it breaks your heart. Mm -hmm. Which might cause them to turn away from it. Well, a lot of kids do. A lot of kids do turn away from it. I mean, a lot of kids are into... A lot of kids... They're, they're lousy Indian kids. I mean, they're... And, and, and there are kids that have taken... They could hardly wait to leave that old stuff behind. And this pressure to leave it behind. I remember my wonderful friend, Matt Vera, from Tule River Reservation in the southern part of the San Joaquin Valley, was learning his language. And everybody was down on him for learning the language. What are you learning that old language for? There's nobody going to speak it. In another 10 years, there's going to be nobody to speak it. There's nothing written into it. What are you learning it? You're the smartest guy in the tribe. Why don't you learn law? Why don't you learn medicine? Why don't you learn something that'll help us? What are you doing spending all of your time with that old language? And, and it's valid. I mean, it's, it's, this is, a, this is a wonderful question. Are other questions, comments, broadly? Anyone have any pieces they'd like to add? Larry, you've been referenced here. Any piece of this you'd like to you, contribute? Well, I just wanted to say, um, Malcolm was talking about um, that early work on East Bay Ave. Um, I still remember the light box that you made. Oh yeah. He, made, he had a handmade light box that he was using to, um, to to do this book, and I was very impressed by that. And uh, and and, and uh, I mean, you you've always just had this sort of uh, ability to be able to uh, say, well, you know, this ain't shit. we can do it. So <laughs> as we did with when we were trying to repair my VW bus. <laughs> and, uh, when we had the engine out, it didn't look so good. <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't look so good. We, but, but we had a book, VW Repair for the Complete Idiot. <laughs> the idiot actually, the idiot's that, that, guide. that Idiot's Guide to VW in the in the biography, which is so interesting. Yeah. One of the points that's made, Malcolm, is that you brought together uh, the the sort of interest in publishing and then the interest in the Idiot's Guide to VW Repair, and so you you had both the confidence that you could work this out mechanically. And then the, the cultural interest in being able to do it yourself, and as you quoted in the biography as saying, 
that when you were designing your own books, that you became a person you liked. You weren't the person that you didn't like when you were, you know, uh, involved in something that didn't interest you. That's an interesting observation. Yeah. Well, you said it, so you know. Uh, but but that you became who you liked being, and there was that combination of the Idiot's Guide to VW Repair, and and as one the mechanical aspect of the printing, and then the whole cultural dimension of your curiosity, uh, both about you know first of all the Ohlone, then California Indians, and then branching out into all of heyday, which we really haven't talked about a lot about, but which became, you know, a tremendous cultural power in a period where there was a whole ecosystem of small publishers that you were interacting with in a tremendously creative way. Yeah. Hey, listen, if you can pull Larry's bus into my backyard and pull out that motor, and, and, and we went down into the rods and the bearings, and his wife was just so at us because th th this was their this was their VW bus and 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 Larry was with his old derelict friend Malcolm and they didn't know what they were doing and the whole family depended upon this VW bus mm -hmm. and the and, and when the thing finally actually ran, it was one of the great moments of my life. <laughs> I had a lot on the line. I had a lot on the line, man. Bubbles would have killed me. Yeah. You know, heyday itself. I want to say, you know, so we have there's some of the catalogs out here. How many titles have you published now, approximately? Three or four hundred, maybe. And how many are in the works right now? Well, we're doing about twenty to twenty-five books a year, and we're working. And there are books in various stages of crisis. Right. Uh, there are some that are ready to go to the, some at the printer right. ready to come back. There are some being prepared for the printer. There are some of them that are being edited. There are some of them that have been acquired, that are sitting around. So I mean, this is what, I, I've been there, I've seen this. It's this wonderful, if you go to the Heyday headquarters in Burke, it's a converted house, and it's this wonderful hive of activity of people working there, a lot of young people too, and the books are laid out in all different forms, and the, the previous ones are all there available and published. And But we're in an era where people say it's like the end of the printed page. Everything's going digital and for various reasons. So, no kidding. That's what, that's what they say. And so, you know, and there's Amazon, which is destroying, and others are destroying the small bookstore and that kind of thing. And I'm just wondering, you know, how do you feel about the future of the book itself and publishing and, and the, the viability of what you've been doing in the future? Hey, listen, Steve, I don't know whether I talk about it in the biography or not, but I've got a partner that I've been with all these years, and it's Captain Denial. <laughs> and, and Captain Denial has gotten me through places where nothing else will ever get you through. And if I don't want, and, and if something comes that's disturbing, I just don't deal with it. Uh -huh. but, what I know how to do is do beautiful books, and we do gorgeous books, and I know how to, and, and I love that act of putting something together. I, 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 there's the book, and I, so we do about 20 to 25 books a year. So this means every two weeks, another book comes back from the printer. And it comes down to Anna, and she calls me, and she says, such and such a book is there. And I come down, and I'll open the carton from the printer for the first books. And I'll look at the book, and I'll, 
and, and the funny thing is I'll, I'll, I'll heft it I mean, to see what the physical weight is and I'll, I'll look at the price and see if it's been priced right and I'll f flip over the pages just to see what the whole thing feels like and what it looks like and I'll compliment the designer and I'll compliment the editor and I'll put it away and I'm, and I'm really proud, we do very beautiful books and I'm really proud of them but I may never really look at it again what I really am interested in is the community of people that's gotten together in the making of the book and for me, the making of the book, and, and then the community of people that comes when the book is out in the world, when we have part, we have endless parties. We do about 200 parties a year. <laughs> yeah, 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 we do. I, I, Wavy Gravy has come to call himself, I am a temple of accumulated errors, which I think is just so wonderful. <laughs> the, um, but it's, it's, for me, the book is the communities of people that you get together in the doing of it, and then it goes out into the world, and it has its effect, and there are the communities of people that it creates. And it's just some way of getting engaged in the world. It's, it's the same reason why, why, you have, why you have this kind of gathering. It's just... It, it's, 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 it's to be engaged. It's, it's to have ideas flow. We had a we had a, a, a meeting last night to discuss Hetch Hetchy. We and, and and what and what to do with this tragically sullied icon that has been so wounded and and, and how you keep the story alive in rough times. And we had all kind. We had Robert Hass over the poet. We had people from from the Yosemite Conservancy, from the old Yosemite Fund. We had. Poets, we had delusionals, we had, we, we had Ken Brower had written the book for us, it was David Brower's son, and it was just this a great discussion. The week before, we had Tilly Olson's family over for Tilly Olson's, it would have been her 100th birthday. Her wonderful book, Tell Me a Riddle, has been reissued by University of Nebraska Press. We had the Berkeley Poets Co-op coming over. The, uh, I mean, I just love having people over. I just love having... It's, 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 it's the social aspects of it all. It's the social aspects of it all. Malcolm Margolin, thank you for being with us at the New School. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you.